Hello, I would like to welcome you to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. I'm Rick Gilson, Executive Director of the Southern Alberta Regional Office of ARPDC, and my co-host in this series is Charlie Craig of the Learning Network Educational Services Regional Office of ARPDC. Today, I and our, ho- our guest, uh, Brent Gilson, are coming to you from Treaty 7 territory in Alberta. This is the home of uh, this, the Blackfoot Confederation, as well as uh, Métis uh, Region 3. And uh, I would like to acknowledge that it is a great honor and privilege to walk these lands. I enjoy the trails here around McGrath and reflect as I do on those who have, uh, whose land this is and who have come before us and what we can learn from and with them together as we uh, move through our life journey. Uh, Charlie? Hello, I live in Red Deer and Red Deer is a unique um, city situation because we happen to fall on land that is recognized as both part of Treaty 6, which is north of the Red Deer River, and Treaty 7, which is south of the Red Deer River. Um, This means this particular region is home to and was a gathering place for Blackfoot, Sutsina, Stony Dakota peoples, as well as Métis, Cree, and Sotu peoples. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how being a part of the land or steward of the land is different, um, perhaps, than being an owner of land and how that simple shift in thinking can change how you see and appreciate and interact with the world around you. Um, I know that there's times when land acknowledgements feel very rigid or perhaps insincere, but I think part of truth before reconciliation is understanding that no matter where we are within Alberta or within Canada, um, that land is home and is connected to many different Indigenous, um, Métis and Inuit groups. And that is part of the essence of of who they are. And um, with that in mind, we can move forward in a respectful relationship and partnership, um, both as educators and just as humans. Hmm. Thank you very much. So today we welcome uh, Brent Gilson, classroom teacher in Westwind School Division, educational blogger and literacy enthusiast to our podcast. Um, we should probably throw out a disclaimer here of some kind. We should. We should, Bo- yeah. Go ahead, uh, you first. Well, there's like a, education is small, um, but in this particular podcast, it's smaller than normal um, because Brent was actually a student teacher of mine way back once upon a time when we were both babies, right? It feels like a lifetime ago. Um, up in Grand Prairie, grade two, represent um and then brent's known rick here for a little bit longer than that yeah just a little bit longer you referenced babies and yes uh, brent is uh, my second son and uh has uh, followed in uh, into the educational field and uh, very proud of of all that he has accomplished he is definitely not a small baby anymore that's for darn sure <laughs> and uh we look forward to his conversations uh, I had the great honor of watching Brent present at the National uh, Conference of Teachers of English in uh, Anaheim just uh, a few short weeks ago, and uh, that that was great on both a father uh, perspective and as a, a retired, mostly, sort of, uh, English teacher myself. So um, away we go. Okay, so aside from the disclaimer that we all know each other quite well, um, Brent, tell us, like, in a short summary, um, career journey. Where'd you start? Where are you now? A couple of highlights um, along the way. Yeah, I, I started in grade three um, in Cardston. That was um, my first teaching position was um, a halftime teaching position in Cardston in grade three. And then I taught grade four the year after. Uh, in Sterling 
and then I moved to Raymond and I taught grade three there for a few years and then I moved up to grade six and taught that for a few years and then uh, made my journey out of elementary and into junior high and high school uh, which I've been doing for the last five or so uh, years and now I'm um, blessed to be teaching 30-1 English uh, and having a lot of fun with that. So Brent, we'll get into the fact that now you're teaching uh, English 30-1. I'm going to pull the uh, the dad card a little bit and, and Charlie was in the community as well, but I'm particularly interested to know, to know what was there as you look back in your K-12 and I have in brackets and home experience growing up that you think may have influenced your appetite for reading and writing? Like what was your journey growing up uh, and going through the school system uh, that had any influence at all in, in the reading and writing piece? You know, I don't want to like shade anybody, but I don't remember anything from my reading life other than my choose your own adventure books that I like still have these old ratty choose your own adventures and actually funny story I pushed someone out of the way at a library sale when I saw them because they tried to take them and I took them off but aside from those I don't really and comic books right I don't remember having much of a reading life when I was in uh, junior high high school mostly because everything was so like we didn't, I don't know if independent reading at the time was really a accepted practice. You know, we had maybe deer time, which was like 15 minutes um, some days or whatever, but I don't think that the emphasis and so then like classroom libraries weren't really an existent thing. You know, we had to go to the library to get stuff. And I remember going to our public library and checking out books. I still remember some goblin or fairy book that I used to check out all the time. I still remember that book. But aside from that, as a as a kid, I don't remember a lot of of reading and you know, I liked to write stories. I remember that. But my reading life mostly came based off my students, to be honest. You know, as I started to be a teacher, I started to read more for them. And then started to build a library that way and now I have my own interests in reading obviously but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't born in school that's for sure and, and, and you know to be fair that's part of why I asked the question I know that we went to comic stores a lot when you were growing up and had to choose your adventure books and whilst there wasn't the writing necessarily um, I'd share with our listeners that uh, as a young man, this uh, as a young boy, uh, the storytelling was epic. Um, the whole not like lying. Let's be very clear. I no, no, no. It, not like not definitely. Very good point. Not like lying at all. We'd kind of family would kind of gather around bedtime, and Brent would start a story and just go with a story that was kind of like a choose your adventure uh, kind of piece. So, so there was that. Um, looking back as you now teach English 30-1 and other junior and senior high English courses, how has your journey from grade 3 to grade 4 to grade 6, uh, or grade 3, yeah, grade 3, grade 4, grade 6, and, and the early times uh, teaching junior high, how has all of that influenced your work in supporting students in their reading and writing? You know, I was thinking about this actually the other day because in my grade 12s kind of have have moved away from independent reading. You know, they're they're and I think that has to do with COVID, to be a thousand percent honest, but they've kind of moved away from that classroom practice. They want to write more, and that could have to do with the tests that they have to prepare for and all of those sorts of things too. But I think for me, like the sweet spot in my teaching career was that middle grade range the six seven eights that group of kids were i've had the most success with in helping them to cultivate like a really strong reading habit 
because you know there that's when they start moving into you know these novels that have complex ideas and we're seeing that a lot more um i mean in my elementary years i mean i have a massive picture book collection that i still use with my high school students that's in the classroom and right and they still will pull it you know when i when they want to go to the library to you know take that 20 minutes out of class to go to the library and uh you know it's not our day or whatever to go down to the library i have a classroom library so i tell them to pick something from there and there's still times where high school kids or junior high kids will pull uh you know some picture books off of the shelf and sit and read those thinking that they're getting away with something um when i mean there's some really great picture books so i don't care if they want to, if they want to read a picture book for 10 minutes go ahead uh because i can teach a whole lesson using one picture book so they can pull things from it too right um but yeah, I think that that what I've noticed the most is that if we can catch kids into the things, and even if it's a series, you know, I had kids talking to me today about, um, oh shoot, what's it called? I can't remember that's the series, but it's it's one that's moved through all of these all of these kids in the, in my community, and they're like, oh, there's a new one. And, you know, they, they were all just, you know, clamoring about this idea of getting the new book in the series uh, that they love. And I think when we can hook kids onto these series, like all of the girls, um, or a good chunk of the girls in my class are interested in these, um, a good girl's guide to murder series. And they, like, they read through them and then trade them off and are waiting in line for the next one for whoever gets it. And, so I ordered the whole series to make sure that we had it in class because the library only had the first two or whatever. And so I had those in class and, but those kids were hooked. And so now they're waiting. And I think if we're, we're building those kinds of um, that love of reading in younger in that middle grade, then it's going to carry into high school. But if they lose that, I I'm finding the struggle to get that back is, is pretty significant. Well, and it's interesting, I think you've touched on this um, notion that for me, even as a reader, it is an invitation to be part of a community. And so, you know, you've got this group of students who have tapped into this series, and now all of a sudden your entry point into friendship is you've read the same book. And so, um, you know, as an adult who was unsure how to make friends outside of the work um, I turned to a local book club because I figured at the very least we would be able to talk about something that I'm, that I'm interested in and this idea that we can build communities through reading, um, I think is something that you're, you know, in our conversations, you're very passionate about brand. Yeah, it is my joy. Like, honestly, and I remembered it's Michael Vay. It's the Michael Vay books. That's the series that the, that the kids all love. Lots of kids love anyway. And I've read the whole series, even grade seven kids have read the whole series um and they're excited for for more but yeah charlie you're absolutely right like the the community piece i mean i i have learning goals in my classroom and one of the learning goals is you know i am you know a responsible member of our reading community through these practices right and even if it is just using your independent reading time to read you know i had the librarian send me a message asking if she wanted me to cut off um diary of a wimpy kid from my my students because that's all they're that's all they're checking out and I responded back and said like no they're reading so I'll talk to them about maybe trying to expand their horizons you know and next time maybe they can just get one die of a wimpy kid in instead of two but the idea that we're going to tell kids who are engaged in those books and little do folks know that those books actually rate complex in certain you know systems if you want to believe in those rating systems, but, you know, they, they, they want to read those books. I don't want to get in the way of that. I mean, graphic novels are books. So, but I also would like them to stretch a little. Stretch <laughs> I think it's, a little. It's yeah. probably fine if we stretch a little from lunchtime wars, you know. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> now, are we talking about your 30-1s with diary? No, that's great. That's great. Nine. <laughs> But okay. still, even the grade nines, right? I mean, that's, yeah. we're starting to get to a point where it's you can probably start moving into reading some Jason Reynolds uh, rather than rather than Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Well, and that 
uh, that that whole steering teacher book talk kind of conversation is is critical to even them seeing you as a reader, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a very important piece because what I hear lots and I hear this in sessions that I that I am a part of or sessions that I'm leading is teachers are like, yeah, independent reading time is great because I can demonstrate to kids that I am a reader by sitting at my desk and reading. Um, sure. But you could also demonstrate to kids that you're reading by sharing books so that during that independent reading time, you can go down and sit with them and talk to them about their books as well and, and do all those sorts of things, right? We have a classroom library so that we cut down partially so that we cut down on the interruption and time loss by going to the school-based library. It doesn't eliminate a school-based library. It just is there as a supplemental so that we don't see on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, kids asking when it's independent reading time, oh, can I go to the library to exchange my book? No, you exchanged that book yesterday. You're not that fast of a reader. So keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I Power through, kids. Power through. <laughs> um, I was the kid that would have read it all night just so we're... Just so we're clear, it's possible, but you know who those people are. Um, I always loved it when I, I always felt like I've arrived when I remember one student in particular, um, we were doing independent novel studies and obviously then they could pick whatever they wanted and he, and he selected a book based on the number of pages. So it was a high interest, low vocab book that we had brought in for struggling readers. And he got through the first chapter and he's like, Miss Craig, this book sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, you're not really the target audience here. Um, I would, you know, I would applaud you for perhaps picking something else that you're interested in beyond the number of pages that you want to, you know, contribute or, as, as an effort factor. Um, and we ended up finding something else. But the fact that he was willing to say, no, this is too easy. This is not, you know, holding my interest. I was like, okay, we're getting somewhere here. Um, yeah, okay. it's, my, it's, it's my favorite thing when kids quit books, honest, and I know that sounds weird, but if a kid comes up to me and says, like, Mr. Gilson, I do not like this book. Can I stop reading it? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe write a book talk about it and warn people, you know, <laughs> not the book there's a you. lot of self-talk involved to give myself adult reading self permission yeah. to abandon a book. I'm not yeah. sure why, where that comes from, as far as like an instruct, like a ingrained I think it's our practice. generation though, honest to goodness. I think we uh, put us in the same generation, but I think that we were taught we weren't allowed to, you yeah, know? I mean, I remember teachers being like, no, you have to finish that before you get a new book. And I did not love reading in elementary school. No offense to my elementary teachers who are still practicing and maybe listening to this one day. Like <laughs> I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't find that joy. I do now as a, as a grown up, and I find joy in reading books that are meant for teenagers. They're fun. <laughs> so what are you currently reading? My current, current book is, and I don't want to mess up the title, so I'm going to look it up because I don't have it here with me. I left it at school accidentally. I mean, aside from your comic book collection, that yeah. I know it still grows. You talked about comic books like this was a past tense thing. No, And I know not. for a fact that is not the case. Yeah, my current, current read um, is Hollow Fires uh, by Samira Ahmed. That's what I'm currently reading in... Uh, reading right now i just um i had read hands i tori maldonado i he had sent me a or the publisher had sent me a advanced copy it's not quite out yet um but i read that um uh, the first week or second week of christmas break i just sat down on saturday and read it and it's fantastic so i do hope that people will get it for their classroom libraries when it comes out because it's it is really good it's it's a, a short book um but really good just like his other um, his other stories but yeah hollow fires and it's really good too and that's what i'm currently reading and then i have a stack that i need to um i have a stack of them in here that i want to read um the door of no return kwame alexander the getaway um as long as the lemon trees grow is another one that was recommended to me and it's here waiting for me to finish and then professional resource books which i love to collect and read I, I just, I, of course, asked that question selfishly because my to-be-read pile is never 
it's just always under development. Uh, I, I like. saw a funny thing yesterday where someone said we should stop referring to them as to be red piles and start referring to our bookshelves like we treat them as wine um, sellers. Because oh. you know you have the perfect book for the perfect moment, but you might be sitting on that shelf for a year or two before you get to it. And I thought, oh, yeah, I, I get like that. It. Yeah. Because I have books that I'm still waiting to read that have been sitting here forever. But then Fred, other ones us. come in and, you know. I know, I know. And then it's like, oh, this is the one. And yeah. my problem is, is I gather suggestions from all kinds of people. And sometimes I like to have an idea of what I'm entering into before I start reading. And then I start reading and I'm like, where is this book going? Because I just don't know. Um, and I often get the eBooks. And so I don't have the blurb or whatever. Um, or what, like, why am I reading this book? Who told me this was a good idea? Um, don't worry, I finished the book. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the struggle is real uh, for book enthusiasts. So Brent, tell us how you decide what gets added to your classroom library. Do you have a philosophy around your classroom library development or like a 10 year vision plan? Like to break it down for us. And give us some idea of what the size of that library is as you've been guesstimating anyway. You know, I I actually have no idea how how many books are in my classroom library. It's I mean, there's there's people that I know who have much larger classroom libraries, but um, I do have a pretty decent classroom library. I was blessed to um, be a recipient of the Book Love Grant uh, one year, and so I was able to get some books that way. Um, as like a starting teacher, you know, I didn't understand the concept of like quality over quantity when it comes to a classroom library. And so I was just like buying all of the scholastic, you know, packages of books so that I had like a full classroom library and there, you know, some of those books were never broken open, you know, no, no crease in the spine exists because the books were there, but there was no interest from the kids in them. It just was books on a shelf. Right. And so I haven't really focused on how many books. I just try to make sure that the books I'm getting are ones that my kids are interested in. Um, so if I get their recommendations or if I get recommendations from others and then I'll read them and then I'll book talk them to the kids. Um, and then we go from like we go from there. Uh, I try to have a mix um, with graphic novels and then varying lengths of novels, books in verse, um, all those things. So there's just variety. I find too, like I've worked at schools where the um, librarians, they curate their collection the way that they want to, obviously. And sometimes that curation leaves titles out um, intentionally or not. And so I try to make sure that I have um, a good mix and look for diversity in not just characters, but also circumstances um, so that kids kind of see that, that stuff. And we look at like um, Dr. Bishop's whole um, idea of mirrors and windows and doors, right? I want my classroom library to reflect that um, as much as I can. It's hard to find books um, about, truthfully, it's hard to find books about rural white kids who like to ride horses. Those books aren't being written. So if there's someone out there that wants to write books for kids in the Westwood School Division um, so they can see themselves, yeah, you make some money. Um, but like, that's I think that's my that's my number one thing it's like if I like it and it's their age category then I'll put it in the library if they come to me and say Mr. Gilson I found this cool book and you need to get it then I go and I buy it um you know I'm luckily I'm in a situation where I can't afford to do that and I know some aren't but there's ways that we can look at you know library sales and things like that that we can um, supplement and build our classroom libraries that way so do you have some go-to authors that like as soon as that's published you were on it or um you know i always found that i had certain titles that i kept buying um because they disappeared out of my classroom library which meant someone else had claimed them which i never took personally i actually kind of liked that that you know they've yeah. fallen in love with it so much they forgot to bring it back um do you have some that you would recommend to to folks yeah. um like Neil Schusterman, like the whole Scythe series, I think I've oh. bought, I've bought probably eight copies of the original uh, and I have it even in a book club and some of those have gone missing because all of my classroom ones went missing. So then I started taking from my book club stash and then, so like those books um, always go 
um the whole it's like karen mcmanus the one of us is lying one of us is next like that series of books those ones when those come out the kids are instantly wanting the next one um i personally like my favorite book of uh last year was in the wild light by jeff zentner it's so so good and so i've got a few kids that are onto his books now um his other books as well um the serpent king is also like it's one of his and it's just excellent i love it um but kwame alexander's books those move in the classroom always uh i think books in verse often um are really successful because you can like honestly you can trick kids into thinking that it's like not a lot of reading um but they're so deep <laughs> right they're so good and yeah, they're so, so... i'm sure you have me moth in your collection. i have it i have it here at my house but i haven't i haven't read it yet so I know you had suggested it last summer to me and I hadn't, I haven't read it yet. Um, but I'm sure it will. I know I've heard so much uh, good things about it, but in, in graphic novels, like graphic novels fall apart. They get read so much um, that they fall apart. And um, Nikki Smith wrote the golden hour, which is a graphic novel. And it is so beautiful. Like it's so beautiful. Um, but trying to get the kids to read it because of the cover, they're like, no, that doesn't look interesting. But honest to goodness, it's really, <laughs> it's really so good. Um you'd mentioned but, yeah. Jason Reynolds earlier. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Jason Reynolds books, like, and I mean, a lot of people will go with um, you know, like the ghost series and things like that, um, when they're talking about like Jason Reynolds books, but even it's like when I was the great or when I'm the I, when I was the greatest, I think it's called. Anyways, some of his other ones, Boy in the Black Suit, like they're so good, um, but they're not the ones that are usually, I mean, even up here anyways, they're not the ones that are like pushed, um, you know, in conversations. Uh, lots of times it's, it is the the ghost series. I mean, it's funny, even like a Google search and the first one that comes up is the ghost um, track series, right? Uh, which is, it is amazing. Long Way Down is amazing. Yeah. All American yeah. Boys is amazing. Do yeah. you guys have a system um, or or how do you support access to audiobooks in your context? Is that something available through your school library? Or yeah. yeah, school library can, yeah, the school library can access it um, through, I know some, I don't do this because like my Audible library doesn't always have, like that's not usually like junior high books. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that some people have like an Audible account, which probably is against the rules, but they have an Audible account kids can log into to listen. Um, but yeah, through some apps through our, our school library and our school library is connected to our public library as well. So yeah, I um, encourage people to reach out and get a public library membership whenever they can, um, yeah. because the Libby app, you know, that's how I listen to audiobooks yeah. on my phone. And once yeah. we, you know, green light that audiobooks is reading, mm -hmm. um, right? It, it's funny though. We had a, we had a good conversation today about this uh, with another teacher because I think yes, audiobooks, um, just like graphic novels, just like any other text, are a form of text. There is a there is something that I am noticing in that kids who are struggling to read, it's almost like some teachers are just saying, "Well, here's an audiobook. Now you're reading," rather than addressing why the kid's struggling to read. Right. And so they're going to continue to struggle to read a text and not every text that comes before them is without assistive technology is going to become an audiobook, Right. I mean, yes, technology is there. You can take your cell phone, take a picture of it, and then your cell phone will decipher the text and read it to you. But yes, push audiobooks. I think, especially for reluctant readers or kids who really like struggle with the amount of time that it takes to read, because you can adjust the, you know, the narration speed and those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, that I, through our public library would be where they get their access to audiobooks. For me, it was always about the intent. So is the intent of experiencing the text, reading the text, or is the intent of us working with this text to understand character development, understand theme, understand whatever. Yeah, yeah. And if the intent isn't the actual reading, then let's supplement that part. Let's take that weight off. And then we're not ignoring it, but we're just not, you know, focusing yeah. on that piece in this moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I, I think it's like, it's same as, and I've said this before and even earlier when we were, we were chatting, sometimes for me, audiobooks like kind of straddle the line between book and movie. And sometimes 
because kids, when they watch movies, it's the same thing. We can do a lot of really great stuff with it and helping kids to respond to text because film is text as well. But I know for myself, sometimes I'm listening to an audiobook like while I work out, which is great. And other times I zone out and I've missed three chapters of the book, right? That, that also can happen when you're reading a book, like a text with your hands, you know, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's like, it's a weird area where I totally agree with audiobooks and I want kids to have access to them. And I also want to make sure they're actually listening and right. getting and understanding I, I read from it. Some, you know, work or not, it's not really concern. Well, yeah, it is a concern, but um, just that we need in the light of social media brains, TikTok brains, um, that a skill that we actually need to explicitly teach and train for is attention, attending to things yeah. for more than 90 seconds at a time. Yeah. And I was, I used to be like that for audiobooks. Like I could tune out and be like, oh, whoa, whoa, are we still, are we still listening to that? Um, and podcasts became like my gateway drug into audiobooks. Cause if I could sustain a podcast, then I, you know, can listen to a book. Yeah. I love podcasts also. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to leave out too, um, in my classroom, and we use this as like a full class, like a whole class novel, which I know some people have some opinions on, but you can find me on Twitter if you have want to share it. But um, anyways, we we read um, David Robertson's The Barren Grounds as a whole class, um, actually with two different classes. So it was interesting because I, I had to differentiate, you know, tasks and things like that. because the, the two different classes are um, different uh, levels by a significant degree, but it still was like a, a really accessible text. And now in my classroom library, I have the second, third, you know, uh, book waiting for the fourth, that kind of thing that, and, and kids were like, well, what happens next? Like, where can we get the next one? Where can we get? So that's the other piece, right? Is like in our classroom practice, we can get kids hooked on, on a series or on an author with the how we're using the text as a teacher and then build our classroom libraries to continue to feed that desire to to follow those characters or to follow that author's work I mean Gordon Corman's wrote 14 billion trillion books I think he writes 17 a month or something I'm not sure but um my kids are constantly looking for Gordon Corman books right I mean I read Gordon Corman books as a kid R.L. Stein, baby, all the R. L. way. R.L. Stein, goosebumps. You know Stein what? Book. That just brings back so many memories for me because I—that is what I read when I was in elementary school and junior it high. Was, was it was Fear Street for me? Fear Street like and goosebumps. Goosebumps, yeah. And so it was like Fear Street all the way. And my parents, like I, like bless them, but they made the mistake of being like, you know what? If you want a book, we will always buy you a book yeah yeah you will and so you know it was i don't have this one yet i don't have this one yet yes. and, uh, i see it in my i had a student right? reading a, an original fear street book last year in class and i was like yes let's talk about this <laughs> well and you get so far like when you grow as a reader right and you go back and you're like wow does he really end every chapter with and they wouldn't know what was going to happen next or whatever it was like it was like the yeah. the classic cliffhanger and and you come back and you're like oh wow yeah he does. I, do need to go, I need to go somewhere else now for my reading, reading joy, because this is not <laughs> <good> anymore. <laughs> we did not have such sophisticated taste when we were children, Charlie. Hey, what can I say? Sophisticated for the time, perhaps. You, yes. You've uh, broached a little bit as we just transition forward here. Um, you, you have a presence on Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter, Brent? Oh, I am at Mr. B. Gilson on Twitter. And I'm holding on to that sucker till the dying day. <laughs> it seems to be settling down. I, I didn't see the poll results uh, when he put out there, should I sell, should, uh, should Elon oh, he Musk? Down? He lost, 100% he lost. Find a replacement, bud. but But there we go. Um, what I'd like to focus on is what was it that drew you to social media and particularly the literacy-related conversation uh, and the idea of sharing your thoughts and opinions on that. Um, start well, with that. Well, um, my first real experience on Twitter. So when Disrupting Thinking came out um, by my friend Kylene Beers and Robert Probst, when that came out, uh, I was I was interacting a lot 
Um, and like I had heard about Twitter being a good place for educators and that there was things happening. And then there was this little G to great chat um, that I had never participated in before, um, but they were talking about um, they were talking about disrupting thinking. And I had had the opportunity um, to, to do a little interview just before that for a magazine, I think Scholastic Magazine, because I think that's who put out Disrupting Thinking was Scholastic Magazine. Anyway, or Scholastic was the publisher, I think. I could be wrong on that. I had to do an interview anyways. And then um, Kylene had sent me a message saying that they were going to be on um, this Twitter chat. And so I went on it so that I could kind of participate in that. And then um, long story short, I met Mary Howard, uh, Dr. Mary Howard, and she kind of got me into more of like the educational world of uh, Twitter and social media teacher kind of stuff. And she started sharing out my work um, on my blog on things Mr. G says, uh, which I don't blog as regularly as I used to. Um, but mostly she would share my anti-accelerated reader um, posts that were amazingly, um, you know, honest. And, and, and that, got me, that got me going. And so from there, I've just really like jumped in. And now I am a co-moderator with G2 Great. And I'm starting my own chat at the end of this month. We're going to be talking about Angela Stockman's new book. And um, just trying to find as many avenues to get information to teachers and help teachers and support them um, as I can, because I know it's hard to find things. And oftentimes, professional development that comes our way is um, not as helpful as people seem to think. And so having lots of options out there so teachers can find what they're looking for uh, is important, I think. And that's what so that's what social media and the kind of the teacher world brought me. And then it just brought me to all of these amazing people. Like I would not have had the opportunity um, to present at NCT without my friends that I've made through um, social media connections and now I've met in real life. I wouldn't have the opportunity to sit with the president of NCT and have dinner, right? Like these just crazy things that I pinch myself still. And really in the end, all of it goes back to um, Mary Howard being nice and, you know, talking to me and showing interest and enjoying my work and, and sharing it. And we just have, I mean, it started there, but now it's, yeah, so, it's something. I don't know so, if that answers your question. It, it does, Brent. And so how would you advise young teachers to engage in this mode of learning and growth? Because I think you would definitely, as you just you just did, you would argue that, yeah, there's interactions and certainly you can sometimes get um, uh, opinionated, which is okay. My opinions but, are right, though. And actually, I learned <laughs> reading a book. I'm reading a book for my master's course. And it specifically talks about the difference between knowledge and opinion. And like, I speak from a place of knowledge when it comes to things like Accelerated Reader. Listen, people that are listening to this, if you're still using Accelerated Reader with your kids, you're harming them. The end. Okay. You can delete that part if you want to. <laughs> no, no, I think that's fine. That's, that's fine. We knew what we were getting into here. And some of our listeners will know what they're getting into too. But what how, what advice would you give the teachers coming out now? I mean, you're, what are you, 15 years into this? No, 12. 12. I think this is my 12th. This is my 12th or my 13th year. Okay. I It would have been 15 years ago that I worked with Charlie. Okay, there we go. So, you're, you know, your mid-career, how would you advise or what would you, what, what advice would you give? Uh, to them engaging in this mode of learning and growth? I think cultivating um, professional relationships is super, super important. And also they need to be with the right people. Like there is a lot of snake oil salesmen of the education world that inhibit these like, inhabit, inhabit, these like um, social media spaces right? That are more about likes than they are about content. And they're more about being retweeted than they are about helping teachers, uh, you know. So some of them are wisely. publishers. And so, yeah, like choose wisely and, and like go in with a mindset of wanting to learn and grow rather than fixed on like 
this is what I think and it's going to be right. So I, I can't learn from anybody because like I still, one of my favorite memories is being called in by an educator on Twitter for something I said that they thought was incorrect. And it was a learning moment for me rather than me getting my feelings hurt and being like, you can't treat me this way. I was like, oh, I need to pause. Right. And, and learn. And, and that's what I think, and I don't even just think that about new teachers. I think any teachers that decide, you know what, I'm in a space where I want to learn and grow, need to be open to the idea that they actually need to learn and grow. And some people aren't ready. It, it might be subconscious there, Brent, but you use the phrase, I remember being called in by a teacher for something that I had yeah. said. Most people would say called out, but you said called in and took that as a learning opportunity. And maybe it's a much better way to look at it. Like when you're called out, you know, okay, I'm a little, I'm called, okay, I, I need to lean in and see what this person is saying about what I said and reflect upon it and, and go from there. That's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I got that. I did not. The, the call-in thing came from me, anyways. My experience came from um, Dr. Laura Jimenez, who is um, an educator in the states, and she used the term with me. So I just want to make sure I'm citing people that cool, um, but that say things. But yeah, I mean the the term. I think it works, right? And there is there's a difference between a call-out and a call-in, and and all of those things. And I felt as though it was something that was done in care. Right. As someone who who had had good interactions with me and and wanted me to understand that what I had done was wrong rather than calling me out and trying to embarrass me, because there's a lot of gotcha folks now, too, that want to do that kind of stuff like they're waiting for people to fail. And I think as new teachers or new teachers that are new to social media, if they're going out there, like be ready for that kind of stuff. Right. Because there is going to be people like block liberally you know, is my like new practice in life. If someone comes with platitudes into my, into my mentions and tries to tell me that everything will be okay, if I hope it will, you know, then um, I just block them. It's fine. I don't need that energy in my life. Well, and it's about curating a space with people that you value their insights and learning. Yes. Um, and just like curating our classroom libraries, just like, yeah, that's exactly. what, I mean, that's what we need to do is surround yourselves. I mean, I I have the privilege of calling brilliant people who in one point were like my mentors or like my idols or those sorts of things that are my friends. And I refer to them as my friends and they correct me when I, you know, if I don't refer to them as my friend, you know, can I take a selfie? Uh, we're friends, of course you can take a selfie. You know, that kind of thing where like I pinch myself all the time. Julie said it, my wife, uh, Julie, principal, just for the listeners, principal of McGrath Elementary School. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyways, she says all the time that it's so bizarre watching at these conferences and things that we go to, people coming up to me and being like, are you Brent from Twitter? You know, like it's You're such an a bizarre. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm not. But it's it is funny. I mean, we went to the we went to the protest. I, I guess probably can't talk about this. This is government related. We went to the um, public, the public education thing at the legislature um, last year, whatever that was. It was a cold day, but we went. Uh, Julie and I went, and someone stopped me on the side of the, like walking down the steps of the ledge, to be like, "Hey, are you Brent Gilson?" And I just thought that's crazy. But I mean, that's the that's the thing, right? It's like we 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 try and build and cultivate. I want to support teachers, the people that that men, have mentored me or have been examples to me. That is their life uh, goal, right? Is to support and build up teachers, and I just want to be able to support that way as well if I can. And that's a that is a definitely a genuine feeling. And just shift gears one more time here, away from the social media a little bit. Hey, what has you so excited about writing and multimodal methods of communication, and how is that impacting your assessment practices? Let me tell you. Okay, lean in. First of all, just get ready. No, um, yeah. So my friend Paul um, Hankins he posts the most amazing things of his students work and just so creative and i was looking for ways that i could help my students to not just be more creative but to take risks 
and to grow in different ways and to be able to show their brilliance in different ways because you know you always have these kids I mean English isn't an option right like you got to get kids in the door and they have to come they don't have a choice there if they want to graduate and so like let's try to find ways for them to be successful and when I saw the work that Paul did uh, which led me to the work that Angela Stockman does and and other educators I thought this is the way right like by giving kids opportunities to represent their thinking in ways that they can really shine that's how I'm going to get them and so we moved into um just like exploring multimodal and multi-genre work a little bit and it was really amazing just to see the things that were coming out from these artists and these poets and these filmmakers right like people will say to me in sessions like how do you get football players to do this kind of work right like football players can't be artistic and creative and amazing but anyways football <laughs> player here people okay but like how do you get them to do this and i have these these football players have made these video tributes to the life of sports that they've had and why sports are so important to them and all of those sorts of things and like like these amazingly cool one took we we watched um for everyone uh, jason reynolds for everyone which is a, a poem book um that he had turned into like a performance art multimodal video thing so we watched the video and the kids pull lines from it and then they use those lines to create their own multimodal or multi-genre response right and some of them will create collages pictures whatever things lots of them stick with art at first because it's safe and comfortable for them and so they build these things but one of my players took Jason's voiceover took his own uh videos of his training and things like that for whatever and created a video montage that had the Jason doing his his recitation of his poem but to this student's highlight film from his football and his training and his all of his like life sort of stuff right and it was incredible I have one sitting waiting for me because our multi-genre project that we do for my English 30 students um, that's a better representation of their learning than a test but anyways uh they <laughs> they just turned in this like there he's turned it in and I've read through his, his poetry that he has written and tributes to a family member who's passed away and the project is all around legacy and the mark that you leave behind right and he's done all these things and sitting there waiting for me to download is this video about his journey through sports and the legacy he hopes that he leaves but also and he's written this in a poem as well that he hopes to come back to right and to coach and to be the 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 little league coach and to to do those sorts of things and be someone that kids in the community look up to as a past you know zenith right and like you can't make that up with an ai typing program you can't you can't pull this kind of beautiful work that multimodal um, and multi-genre work really support and help and help build Right. And then we get to the point of grading where people are like, yeah, but how do you grade it? Sarah Zerwin, Dr. Sarah Zerwin, okay, her book, Pointless. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think she had it even when she wrote the book. I just don't think she puts like doctor on her, her stuff, but I will say it. Um, but um, she wrote Pointless, which is actually one of my, I would say it's in my top five. Uh, professional resources for for teaching because it lays out so beautifully how you can approach gradeless assessment in a way that encompasses what you do in your daily practice but gives students the opportunity to be thoughtful and reflect and collaborate in coming up with if you have to have a grade coming up with a collaborative in a collaborative effort a grade that reflects their growth rather than this like rubric checkbox or you know a score out of a hundred I mean I am not worthy to give kids a number grade on their brilliance when it is put on a page and I cannot do better <laughs> you know like they I, I had a student that drew a picture of a train going like on musical like I don't know what it's called the music lines you know what I'm saying for like oh, written, like sheet key. music the music whatever key. right 
And that turned into train tracks driving into um, a mountain, like a cave, all done by pencil with the line from Jason Reynolds of soundtracks for dream trains. Mm. And that was his response to the text. What am I going to do with that? Now that's a seven, 17 out of 20 because you have a smudge. No, so that's six, the stupidest 6.7 out of 10. That's exactly it, right? I mean, how, how? why can we not break away from this to say, like, let's see, like, here's the outcomes. Show me how you've done these outcomes. Well, here is me responding to text in a variety of ways. Yep, it is. High five, moving on, right? Like, you've got it. But we get so stuck on numbers and it's hard. Like, it has been a journey. I, I mean, COVID pushed me into trying to figure out a better way to assess kids because, I mean, people were like, oh, kids don't have to turn in any work anymore. We just should give them 100% all the time. So, right. And kids couldn't lose marks in Alberta anyway um, when COVID first happened. But I needed to be able to keep being a teacher. I didn't want kids to just be like, oh, my mark can't change, so I don't have to turn anything in anymore. And I thought, you know what, if the world's going to change and education's going to change and maybe we're not going to be in person as much as we'd like, you know, who knew back then that we'd just start ignoring a pandemic. But like, you know, we, so anyway, we had to rethink things. And, and this was that, right? And the growth, like every single kid grows throughout the term and their reflections, I, I have said this in many, like many, many times in, to many people that doubt this, this process. I can literally count on one hand the amount of times that a grade conference with a student has resulted with a student having a grade vastly out of the ballpark of where they actually should be, right? Because I don't get, I don't have the privilege of just saying like, oh, I'm not grading anything. I still grade it. I just don't give the kids a number. They don't see a number ever until we sit down and talk about a grade. And in that situation, a kid comes to me and says, oh, Mr. Gilson, I feel like I should, because of this, 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 and this, have a 82, you know, whatever the number is. And I'm like, that's funny because the actual average of your assignments was an 83. So how about I give you the 83, right? Yeah. Or how about instead we give you an 85? Like, who cares? It's a number. It doesn't actually reflect very much other than in a standardized exam, which like, I'm not even gonna talk about those things unless we wanna have a 45 hour long podcast so about useless I, ways to do things. <laughs> um, I mean, the beautiful thing I think about multimodal work and this multi-genre work and, and, and what you're truly talking about is an authentic capturing of understanding and connection. And, um, you know, what I love, always loved about working with Angela Stockman and, and Trevor Elio and, and all of those people um, is it brings humanity back into our work that I think sometimes we try to distill out for some reason, um, which interestingly enough segues into our next question for you. Our last question actually is, um, what are some of the emerging technologies that you're excited to leverage in your class? And, and, you know, knowing that multimodal or multi-genre work is something that you enjoy working with, um, and perhaps in contrast or in concert with, depending on your, your lens, we have, you know, panic, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the computers are coming for our jobs. Uh, at the very least, the computers are coming for your, um, written assignment that you might have been assigning for the last 15 years. Um, so what, you know, where are you at in the land of tech? Because I know you're, you're pretty tech savvy or at least tech welcoming. Um, yeah. What does yeah. it look like in Brent Gilson's classroom? You know, I've been thinking about this because yeah, with these AI, like the chat GPT or whatever it's called, I really am honestly not giving it that much thought. I don't, find it's going to affect my life. Like I've read student, like I, I feel fairly certain that a student turned in something this year that was written with it. Um, but because the parameters weren't set enough, we watched a film, their written response referenced a short story that wasn't written by the same person who directed the film. So it was like, I mean, I think that when, I think technology is at a point where it's supposed to be 
of hopefully making things easier for us, but I don't think that it should be giving us permission to accept mediocrity, right? And like, that's, that's where I feel like it's going with things like AI programs, unless we just like leverage it, right? And take advantage of, sure, like I need a short story and my kids have used these ones. I'll put some details into this thing, have it write me a quick short story that we can study as a class. Or we're going to do an essay on this and I want to make a mentor text for them really quick. I mean, there's fun in writing your own mentor text though. So that's where I'm like, I don't want to use technology to write the essay that I want to teach with. I want to write the essay so that I can model the struggle. Like when we look at the work of like Kelly Gallagher and Penny Kittle, writing with our students is not writing a sentence into chat, you know, GPT and asking it to spit something out that I then tell the kids, now you have to write your own version. <laughs> like I'm going to use the technology to help me out by you get a chalkboard and a piece of chalk you better get to it you know like it's it's Your crazy students use tech like when you talk about these multimodal multi-genre projects mm -hmm. do you find them leaning into tech use like you've referenced some video creation yeah some um, like lots of them will use canva right okay. and i i love canva i honestly do now they have their own ai document generator too but whatever i don't care but i really love canva there's so many options that you can go with um uh, with canva and so that's a really fun one they they find all these video making apps i've had kids um do projects using their instagram um and they did a photo essay using their instagram so just like captions in their instagram and then they just like printed out their pages kind of thing so that we had it kind of laid out so I didn't have to look through their phone, right? Um, but they did, uh, when we were doing some project-based writing, kids used um, like TikTok or they use um, other social media to like tell that same story that they tell with their friends. So yeah, I'm all for it. And you know, and I'm looking at things like there's AI art generators now as well, right? Which like, I get it. Artists are like, no, no, you, I mean, we need to pay artists, which I totally agree with. We, I don't want, you know, Jason Reynolds to stop writing books because AI programs can write a book. Like, I'm sorry, there's a difference. It's like having a T-bone steak on and Star McDonald's, Trek. you <clears throat> no, know, on, on Star Trek, well, on Star Trek, Star Trek <laughs> hey, listen, that hologram food, I was here for it. I would have <laughs> eaten that stuff as a kid. I would have. That's not a problem. But, you know, like. We have these beautiful artists, for example, or authors that write and craft these beautiful things. That's not getting replaced with the convenience of a fast computer that can find me a, and type up a, a, an, an essay for me in 30 seconds. And if you don't know your students' voices, there it is right there, Brent. Then like, like whatever, if you don't know their voices and you can get something turned in, that should be done in class. That's the other thing too. Like we're handing too much homework to kids. This is what happens, right? We give them 4 million hours of homework, even though they sit at school for seven hours a day. And we expect that we should also have, you know, their nighttime as ours as well for them to write on these essays. Listen, I'm turning to a chat GPT as well if I have to do that. Because kids have lives. I mean, that's one of our conversations we have at the start of the year. You have a life. I have a life. We need to draw some lines as to what our time looks like outside of this building. Because I don't expect you to work for me in the evenings. I dang well expect you to work for me in the day when I'm also working for you. Right. Yeah. Nice, I nice boundaries right there. We've come a long way since SparkNotes. Um, excuse me, but I had caught a student using SparkNotes this week, so we have not come that far. <laughs> I didn't even know it was still a thing. That's so funny. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. <clears throat> I tell the kids, please, you know, guys, you want to use, I mean, it's like someone said on Twitter the other day, we used to tell kids, stay away from Wikipedia. It's totally wrong. You can't use it. And now we don't tell kids that. Now we say, check your sources, right? You want to use Wikipedia, that's fine, but check your sources, where we ask kids to be able to locate truth and you know and we're trying to teach them to do that we need to have critical thinkers if kids are going to start relying on a computer program to type up their essays when they get to a situation where they have to write a test in a locked down computer and they can't do it they're going to fail right i mean people are advocating that we move away from teaching skills this yeah. is wild 
right? Like we need to be teaching kids skills. We need to be teaching kids to love books. We need to be teaching kids to be writers and to recognize their own brilliance. Uh, where do you stand on things like Grammarly? I love Grammarly. Grammarly helps me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love Grammarly. I don't see a problem with it. We're going to teach the kids the lessons. I mean, I taught kids punctuation lessons this year to advance their punctuation so we weren't just having essays written with pair with periods and commas, right? Yep. But they do those things. I still mess up. Yeah. And the suggestion like piece reinforces the teaching. Absolutely. The amount, like, even when I write papers for, for university work, and I get my little report back from Grammarly sometimes, you're like, hey, you've used this many unique words this week, or hey, you've really improved in this category. I'm like, that is great. I'm getting a cookie. You know, like, it's, <laughs> it's this fantastic bonus. There's nothing wrong with assistive technology. I think when we move away from things like that are assistive and helping us to be better, and we're moving towards things that just do it for us with no thought of our own, that's where we're starting to have a problem. Isn't right? that and the if, truth? If we're willing to accept, again, like we've lowered the bar. This is one of my favorite things that Kyleen said um, once at a session. She talked about the idea of like the bar. And if we lower the bar, the kids will reach for it. If we raise the bar, the kids will reach for it. Right. And we need to be raising the bar uh, for our expectations as teachers and stop using things like, well, COVID school was three years ago. Right. Like it's OK for us to go back to the time of saying, listen, you need to be able to do this. It's an expectation. The expectations haven't changed. We've just we've just lowered the bar of what those expectations are so much over the last few years trying to put them back is tough for everybody. You know, I think about I think about weightlifting, for example, right? Like, the, but this is the exact thing. It's like, it's even your spotter, but like you have weight, like to, to become stronger, you have to break things down first, right? And so like, we've had the breakdown. Now it is time, right? We can do more. Kids can do more than I think lots of adults are giving them credit for and I have their work all over my room and their writing is so brilliant. But then we're gonna say, now you must write in this box, right? And we're saying to kids, oh, well, you have to read this certain type of book or you have to do this certain type of thing instead of saying, you know what? I can grow as a teacher and I can change my practice to better fit your brilliance. Like that's what we need to be doing. And we're not, I mean, not yet do we do that. I think so many times teachers say things are gonna change education the system of education is going to change it never changes it changed when we change it and that's exactly it that's beautiful and probably an excellent place for us to press pause today uh on our conversation and i say press pause because uh brent is uh, writing up a, a a session that he's going to offer provincially through uh the sapdc office of arpdc and uh, hopefully we're, we have uh, folks who are interested in uh, engaging in conversation in that session. Really grateful for your time today uh, and uh, wonderful conversation. Lots of things for us all to think about and uh, just, just a really great reminder that uh, all of this literature around us in all of its forms is what makes us human and ai is not human and uh that's, so we're gonna that's... terminator at this point i'm so scared we're gonna have sky labs in a second <laughs> well yeah. you mentioned the sight series and i was like i don't know how you can't read that series and not see what's happening there. this is the cloud this is a thunder cloud mm -mm. yeah Thank you so much for your time on this, Brent, and thank you, listeners, for getting, uh, joining us today and whenever you are listening to this podcast. Um, certainly it builds upon, oh, I, I, you know, the, the struggle of writing, Brent, it just reminded me, um, those of you who have not already listened to our earlier episode uh, with the authors of Valley of the Bird Tale, as they described the back and forth on sentences between the two of them as they were co-writing this. And, you know, 
how many times am I guilty of writing a paragraph and saying, there, there is the words of, that's it. You know, on the first draft, that's it. Now, you know, having written a thesis and a dissertation, I know the first draft is nowhere near end draft, but to embrace that process and get to the deeper, richer, uh, you know, that's, we all want our students and ourselves to do that. So thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back in another couple of weeks with a, another uh, episode um, of uh, our conversations, Changemaker Conversations in Education. And uh, take care. <laughs>